If you would, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. The book of Daniel chapter 8. Today we come to the second vision in the second half of the book of Daniel. And this vision is different from what we saw last week in the first vision, chapter 7, in a number of ways. The first is the timing of the vision. This is the third year. If you look at the first verse, uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. This is from chapter 7, verse 1. And then chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. And as we saw last week, the timing of the vision is really important um, because it marks, at least in chapter 7, a definite shift in things. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. And so there's a shift, a change in style, in spirit, in outlook, and even in the morality of the king. It's reflected in what we saw in chapter 5 when Belshazzar gives a feast and desecrates uh, the utensils, the cups, the goblets from the temple of God that were in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar would never have done this. In fact, as we saw, uh, when he took these away from the temple, he put them in the temple of his God to show respect for them. It seems that darkness has come on the land. There's no longer an enlightened king like Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king and yet open to the reality of God. He was pagan, but he did seem open to the reality of God. Now we have Belshazzar, who is nothing like his predecessor. I think Daniel began to see things in a different light. The history, the politics, Babylon itself. It is worth noting, and I haven't mentioned this before, but in Jeremiah, uh, some amazing things are said about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Next week, by the way, the Lord willing, in chapter 9, we will find a reference to Nehemiah. Uh, This is from uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, king of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. This is taken from Jeremiah chapter 25. The whole country will become a a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. And I mention this here, I'll mention it again next Sunday, but I mentioned it because earlier in chapter 25, this is what God says. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against the surrounding or all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. A couple chapters later in Jeremiah 27, give them a message for their masters and say, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I have made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. 
Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. These are not words we would have heard about Belshazzar. God would never call him my servant. How is Daniel to survive? Should he continue to work in the government? He worked with Nebuchadnezzar, under Nebuchadnezzar, but should he work under Belshazzar? What is the right thing to do? And I think chapter 7, the vision that we saw in chapter 7, is in part to answer that question for Daniel. See, unlike the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue of the four different kinds of metals, you have gold, silver, bronze, and then iron with clay, now the empires that were represented by metals are represented by beasts, by animals. Some would argue that the four empires in chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and in chapter 7, Daniel's vision or his dream are the same. Um, I won't argue the point. Um, I would point out, and I mentioned this last week, that as Daniel has this dream, this vision, and he wants to know what it means, he has little, he doesn't seem interested at all in the first three. The first one we think would be Nebuchadnezzar, but the second and the third he's not really concerned with. It's the fourth beast that Daniel wants to know about. And you might wonder why. Well, in verses 4, 5, and 6, we are told about the first three beasts. But then, from verses 7 to 14, we are told about the fourth beast and the Ancient of Days' response to him. So even in the vision, there is much more emphasis on this fourth beast, and therefore Daniel is interested in it. The vision ends with verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what is the difference? Why, why do we just sort of rush by, gloss over the first three beasts, and then focus on the fourth one? Um, I think in a word, or in a phrase, the saints the people of God. In verse 18 of chapter uh, 7, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. And in verse 25, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. What we find is that the fourth beast makes war against the saints. He defeats the saints, he oppresses the saints, The saints are handed over to him for a time, times, that's one, two and a half. So three and a half times. I would suggest to you that the issue here, or in chapter 7, is not empires or imperialism, but how a system treats the people of God. Again, I mentioned last week, over the past two decades, a lot of Christian writers have been writing about the American Empire and imperialism and, and see it as evil, that any type of empire imperialism is evil. And I think this is not right. I think it misses the point that we find in Scripture. We see it in chapter 2, we see it in chapter 7, and here in chapter 8. 
The issue is not empire, but how does that empire treat the people of God? And so the first three beasts, yeah, okay, they, yeah, it, it might have been the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians and then Alexander the Great. Why focus on the fourth one? Because it is the fourth one that persecutes the people of God and in essence makes war against God himself or tries to. When we see the rise and fall of empires, the issue, I think, in scripture is not morality per se, the moral defects. All political systems are morally defective. I mean, that's a given. I think we need to accept that. And I think all have social defects and economic problems. That's not the point. But rather, it is how do they treat the people of God because the kingdom of God is coming and it will cover the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was told that in his dream in chapter 2. So the timing of this vision I think is important because at this point the people of God are not yet being persecuted. In fact, this is something that's going to come down the road. But Daniel is in a dark place. Nebuchadnezzar is gone and he's got this wretched pagan king who desecrates the things of God in his place. So, the timing is different. Between chapter 7 and 8, the subject matter of the visions is also different. And the interpretation, as we'll see in a few minutes in chapter 8, is very, very specific. Uh, in chapter 7, it's like, yeah, you really haven't told me what it means. It's very, very ambiguous. But we will see it's quite specific in chapter 8. Not as specific as we might want, but much more specific in chapter 7. But there's also a really big difference I think we may have missed, and part of this is because we're reading an English Bible. We're reading a translation. For those of you who have the NIV, and I don't know if other translations, there is a footnote in chapter 2, verse 4. And it tells us that from chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So chapter 1 is Hebrew and the first four verses of chapter 2, Hebrew, and now from chapter 8 on, also in Hebrew. Now, we don't do Aramaic, we don't do Hebrew, so we're, we might not think it's a big thing. Um, Daniel doesn't tell us why he does this. So what I'm going to tell you now is speculation. I, th I think it's a good speculation, but it's, it is only speculation. Um, both Hebrew and Aramaic are very closely related. They're both Semitic languages. But one was, if you wish, the universal language. It was the language of the empire. That's Aramaic. It was the official language. It was the language of commerce. Um, it was the language of diplomacy. It, in many ways, I would say, is almost the way English is today, that it is used worldwide. Okay? Hebrew was the language of God's people the Jews. I think what Daniel is doing by using Hebrew in certain parts and Aramaic in others is saying, okay, this part of my book, this deals with the people of God. We're talking about what's going to happen to them. But in chapters 2 through 7, we are dealing with the nations, the Gentiles, those who are not the people of God. So in a very strange way, I think one could argue that in the book of Daniel, the medium is the message. The language that is being used 
it conveys a very important message. In chapters 2 through 7, Daniel is talking about the other nations. So he uses that language. Now, the Spirit of God through dreams is telling him what is going to happen to the people of God. So he uses the language of the people of God that is Hebrew. That's a big difference. And again, because our Bibles are in English, we may miss that. And I think it's important for us to understand. As was the case in chapter 7, chapter 8 is divided into two parts. First, we have the vision in verses 2 through 14. And then we have the interpretation in verses 15 to 26. Follow along if you would as I read. Uh, First of all, verse number 2, and I'll give a brief explanation. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel, citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. For reference, you need to remember at this point, the timing, Daniel's not in Susa. He's in Babylon. Susa is the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay? So he's not literally there. He is there in the vision. He's being taken there. It is the seat of the capital of the Persian Empire, the western part of modern-day Iran. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. Okay? And the Ulai Canal is a canal that is connected to a prominent river in that part of modern-day Iran. Okay? So Daniel is part of the Babylonian Empire, and he's having a vision that takes place over in the Persian Empire. Okay? Verse 3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifices from him and the place of his sanctuary and was brought low. The, the place of the sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It will take 2300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated okay what does this all mean well now the interpretation is given verse 15 while I Daniel was watching the vision and trying to understand it 
there before me stood one who looked like a man. Uh, let me just say something. What stands out to me at this point is that Daniel doesn't know what the vision means, which means that Daniel's ability to interpret dreams or visions did not rest in himself. When he interprets the dreams for Nebuchadnezzar and then the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar, this is something that God gives to him. He doesn't have it on his own. So he has this vision, but he doesn't know what it means. So God must give him the interpretation. Someone must explain it to him. Verse 16, And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai, that is the canal, calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. The voice, that is a man's voice from the Ulai, a body of water, uh, implies the voice of God on the face of the water, is what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Gabriel is mentioned here. This is the first of four times he is mentioned in the Bible. He will be mentioned in chapter 9, and then in Luke 1 when he appears to Zacharias, and then to Mary. Here we're simply told his name, that he is to tell Daniel what the vision means. Verse 17, As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Just a side note again, as we find throughout scripture, Daniel's reaction is normal when confronted with an angel of the Lord or even the Lord himself. This happens in jo- with Joshua, for example, um, in Joshua chapter 5. Um, it happens with Samson's parents. It happens with the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we are Americans, we're very self-confident. We imagine that if an angel of the Lord came to us, we would just sort of shoot the breeze with him and not have a problem. No, when we are confronted with something supernatural, the normal tendency is to fall on our face before that being. And this is what Daniel himself does. One more thing. What is meant by the time of the end? A phrase that will appear six more times in the book of Daniel. I think we, well, we tend to think in terms of our own existence. So it means the end of time, maybe within our lifetime, you know, somewhere near to us. Um, I don't think that's what is intended, and not today necessarily, but as we go along, I think what in fact is meant by the time of the end will become apparent. Verse 18, while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep and my, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me on my feet. So this is a dream he's having. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So now we are given the intent of the vision, the appointed, and then the appointed time of the end. The two horn ram that you saw represent the kings of Media and Persia. This is pretty straightforward. This was an alliance between the Medes and the Persians. The Persians were stronger, so it's, they're the longer horn than the Medes, okay? The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. This is Alexander the Great, uh, from Macedonia. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this, Alexander was tutored. His tutor was Aristotle. So some pretty uh, good teaching there. He took over when his father Philip was assassinated. Um, Verse 22, the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Alexander died at the age of 33 at the height of his power. He had conquered most of the then known world. Uh, but he died in Babylon and 
So his empire was divided up among four generals. Uh, Ptolemy took over in Egypt. The Seleucids uh, took over what we know as Mesopotamia and including Palestine. And then you have two others up in uh, Turkey and Greece and Macedonia. As Gabriel states, they don't have the same power as the one. The four, the four rulers, the four empires are not as powerful as the one was under Alexander. Verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. So here is the point of the vision. And we, at this point, we need to go back to verse number nine. Uh, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. That's Palestine. That's where Israel and Judah were located. It grew until it reached the host of heaven and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set up itself as the great, uh, as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and took place of his sanctuary. And the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice was given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and was thrown to the ground. The truth was thrown to the ground. And then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation and surrender the sanctuary and the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be consecrated or reconsecrated. The little horn emerges from one of the four horns. That's the Seleucids. They were the ones who had Palestine. They had Mesopotamia. And this king is someone who has come to be known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Around 170 BC, this is 370 years after Daniel's vision. Okay, and that's why Gabriel says seal it up because you know it's almost four centuries off. Okay, this is not something that's going to happen in your lifetime. Um, once he takes over, Antiochus will desecrate the temple. The temple's been rebuilt at this point. He will sacrifice pigs on the altar. He will set up an image to himself, and he will claim to be God himself. And he will martyr those uh, prominent people of God who hold to the truth of God, he will kill them. And the language that is used in verses 9 through 14 is metaphorical. It is as though he tries to reach up to the heavens against the prince of princes, God himself, and pulls down the stars. He can't reach God, but he'll reach the stars. Those are the people of God. And he will martyr them. He establishes himself, and it seems that he is very successful for a long time. So successful that he feels no fear at killing those who are the people of God. But the time will come when the temple will be reconsecrated. Okay. At this point, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? And what does it mean to Daniel? Because it's almost four centuries after he lives. Uh, 
And what does it mean to us? Well, let's begin by saying that the vision was not for Daniel alone. Gabriel tells him the vision is true. Okay, it's, it's a long ways off, but the vision is true. It concerns the distant future. Well, if that's the case, why tell Daniel at all? I mean, seriously, why tell Daniel about this Antiochus Epiphanes who's almost four centuries down the road? Oh, maybe God wants, through Gabriel, to give this to Daniel so Daniel can tell the people who will live four centuries down the road. No, I don't think that's what it is. I really don't. Daniel is in the midst of a personal crisis. He has seen a shift from a good king, Nebuchadnezzar, to a wicked king. And I think questions must have come up. How can this make any sense? When Jerusalem was taken, and Daniel was taken into exile, and then later on the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem itself, I think the same questions must have come up. The world has turned upside down. How can this be? The temple represents the presence of God. It's now been destroyed. Does that mean God doesn't exist anymore? That he's not with his people anymore? But then after a while, things settled down. And Daniel and the three Hebrew children with him uh, are promoted, are put in prominent positions. And so you could begin to say, well, maybe that's why this happened. Instead of just the Jews being stuck in Palestine, in Judah, now they are put in positions of authority And they have a much wider audience, if you wish. Yeah, maybe that's why all those terrible things happened. Then Belshazzar comes along. You know, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the God of heaven, not Belshazzar. And now Daniel is given a vision of the future that is even darker than what he can imagine is happening to him at this particular point. If we believe in God, and if Daniel believed in God, we must believe that there is a meaning to human history, even though it may seem really obscure and frankly quite confusing. The things that happen are ordered and controlled to work to the purposes of God. Goodness, we will argue, in the long run will be vindicated, and wickedness in the long run is to be destroyed. But if we think on our own, and by the way, history is my field, but if we imagine that on our own, in our own skill and imagination and wisdom, we can figure it out, uh, I think we're going to get really disillusioned. We will become disturbed, we will be perplexed, and we will have far more questions than we will have answers. There have been things in human history that have been so absurd and so shocking that if someone were to come up to us and say, oh, by the way, there's a purpose behind that, I don't know that we would believe that person because the things are just so terrible. There are stories of unexplainable blessings and delight as well as unexplainable tragedies. The teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, 
but time and chance happen to them all. That's, a, that's in chapter 9. In chapter 10, there is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high places while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. And yet there's something about us that we want to make sense of it all. We want to say it in fact does make sense. One professor of history concluded, judgment in history falls heaviest on those who come to think themselves gods, who fly in the face of providence and history, who put their trust in man-made systems and worship the work of their own hands, and who say that the strength of their own right arm gave them the victory. He may be right, but the reality is we may not live to see it. We may not live to see the judgment take place. Think of the millions, and it is millions, of our brothers and sisters in the 20th century who have suffered greatly at the hands of godless systems. They did not live to see the judgment. And in fact, in some cases, the judgment has not yet come. I think the key to all of this, and for Daniel, is to recognize you're going to have empires come and go, come and go. But what is important is how they treat the people of God. And Antiochus Epiphanes, we are told, will be destroyed, but not by human being. Um, he treats the people of God with, with contempt and great disrespect and kills them. He martyrs them. And he will suffer the consequences. So what are we to do? If we don't know where history is going, we know where it's going, but we, we can't understand all the ups and downs and it oftentimes simply doesn't make sense. What are we to do? What is Daniel to do? Well, if you look at verse number 27, the last verse of the chapter, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And I I would just say, if it's beyond understanding for Daniel, I'm content to say that that's the case for me as well. In, In much like... The first vision in chapter 7, Daniel is really troubled by this. He doesn't say, yes, I know what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't delight in it. He is troubled by it because as dark as his situation is, it looks like it's going to get darker down the road. But there's a significant difference between the end of chapter 7 and the end of chapter 8 even though I think the same thing happened in both. But we are told in chapter 8, then I got up and went about the king's business. In other words, he went back to work. Who is the king, by the way? Belshazzar. It's the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. You mean that wicked king who is so different than Nebuchadnezzar? The one who desecrated the instruments, the the goblets from the temple? Yeah, that guy. Daniel worked for him, and he went back to work. And here I think there is a lesson for us. And I think, for me, this is the purpose of chapter 8. We are to work where God has put us. We will not always understand what is happening or what is going on. But the answer is not to retreat and to sort of, you know, 
build a fortress and hide ourselves out from what's going on in the world. When the darkness comes, we need to be where God has put us because he has put us there for a reason. Daniel had learned in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in his visions that the kingdom of God ultimately would be victorious. It would cover the whole earth. Daniel did not live to see it. We may not live to see it, but it will happen. But for Daniel, and since Daniel to us today, um, horrible things have happened. And things that we don't understand, that frankly don't make sense. But we are to live our lives in the light of the reality that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that will cover the whole earth. And we have a king. So the questions I ask at the beginning, how is Daniel to survive working under Belshazzar? Can he work in such a system? What's the right thing to do? Well, we're told, then I got up and I went about the king's business. I'm not a prophet. I don't, I can't see what's down the road. Uh, we may face really dark days ahead. I don't know. But whatever happens, we are to be faithful where God has put us. That's why he's put us there. Daniel is exactly where God wants him to be. And by the way, after Belshazzar will be Darius. And we saw that Darius put Daniel into one of the top, he's one of the three top guys in the kingdom. What would have happened if Daniel had retreated and said, I'm out of here. You know, he's just be a survivalist and go out in the middle, live in the middle of uh, nowhere by himself. No, no. He is where God has put him. And God, in a sense, pulls the curtain back and says, you know, there's, there's darkness coming down the road. And my people are going to suffer. But in the end, everything will be made right. This is very disturbing to Daniel, and it should be. But at a certain point, he gets up and like, okay, it's back to work. This is where God has put me. And for each of you, where you are, that's where God has put you. And we are to be faithful to God in what we call good times and what we might call bad times, in the light and in the darkness. We will see things that will not make sense. We have seen things that do not make sense. But the kingdom of God is coming slowly but surely. And one day we'll cover the earth. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, it seems our nature that we want to understand. We want you to explain it to us. We don't like being kept in the dark. And the reality is, I think if you pulled back the curtain, we might be, like Daniel, overwhelmed. But in the end, you are the king, the sovereign. This is your world. And while there may be times, there may be individuals or groups of people who rise and do unspeakable things, 
persecute your people. You're still in control. And we are to trust you. We are to work where you have put us. Fair times and foul. And trust that you are in control and you know what's going on. It's all going somewhere. You're leading us to the new creation. We may not live to see the end of time. But that's okay. We are your servants. We are to serve you where you put us. We thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We pray for Ruth in a particular way, all that she's had to do and go through, and tomorrow as she celebrates with her daughter Eden, give her safety, give her strength. We thank you for loving us, for all you have done for us particularly for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.